2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present at the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do know evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. According to the CNN Money website, every year 2.8 million deaths in America are reported to the Social Security Administration. But there are some mistakes. Some years, as many as 1 in 200. That's 14,000 people are counted as dead. In reality, they are still alive. One such lady was Laura Brooks. The 52-year-old suddenly stopped receiving her disability checks. The bank stopped processing her loan payments. When she inquired as to the problem, she discovered the government and her bank considered her to be deceased. To reopen her account, she had to prove that she was alive. Fortunately for Laura, proving she was alive wasn't that difficult. But would it be for you? What if you had to prove that you were spiritually alive? That you were connected to Christ in a saving way? Could you muster enough convincing evidence? This is the test that Paul proposes to the Corinthians in the closing chapter of his second letter. In verse 5, Paul challenges them, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He wants to know if his critics in the church were even Christians. They certainly weren't acting or thinking or prioritizing like Christ. The false teachers in Corinth had failed to understand the central concept of Christianity, that God in His grace reveals His strength through our weakness. 
you would think that a Christian who had embraced the cross of Jesus would understand this paradox. At the cross, God used the world's greatest display of weakness, a victim of a Roman crucifixion, to do the most powerful work ever accomplished. Jesus earned a pardon for sinners and rose to pass it out by God's strength, but through weakness. Never forget, his crucifixion preceded his resurrection. And Paul's critics had judged him on all the wrong criteria. You see, Paul boasted in his weakness. He boasted in his scars, in those areas of his life where God had shown himself strong. Whereas the false teachers, they had it backwards. They wanted to promote their strengths, their skills, their abilities. They wanted to promote the materialistic trappings of their ministry. And they had leveled all kinds of criticisms toward weak Paul. They criticized him after criticized him. Until finally, you know, they had questioned the legitimacy of his ministry. They had questioned the sincerity of his faith. And finally, in chapter 13, Paul has had enough. He says, you should stop questioning me, and you need to start questioning yourself. He writes, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Before he gets there, though, Paul explains in verse 1, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Hey, this past week, something incredible happened. Pitchers and catchers reported to spring training. You knew that, didn't you? It's an important day in my life. Forget about the groundhog seeing his shadow. This is the real harbinger of spring. Pitchers work on the old throw-in motion. The catchers, they dust off the equipment. And yesterday, yours truly reported for duty. That's right. That's right. Pitchers were called on to report for duty. And this old batting pack practice pitcher was called on to report. I got the nod from my oldest son. He called the old baseball coach out of retirement to throw batting practice to his t-ball team. That's right. And wow, was it a lot of fun. I only hit three kids. Hey, I apologize to Zach afterwards. I said, son, I'm sorry. I was rusty for those first three pitches, but after that, man, I was right across the plate. I bring up baseball because of its concepts, because its concept helps us grasp what Paul does here in verse 1. You've heard the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You've heard that song. In the line, and it's one, two, three strikes you're out at the old ball game. This phrase, three strikes you're out, It's now an official expression in the English language. And this is how Paul opens chapter 13. Twice he tells the church at Corinth, hey, three strikes and you're out. Once he does it directly, once he quotes a verse. Notice this, his first statement. Paul refers to his upcoming visit. And it'll be his third trip to Corinth. You remember he was there the first time to plant the church. He returned a second time between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He called that his sorrowful visit. It didn't go so well, remember. His critics attacked him. They bucked his authority. And much of the angst and frustration Paul emotes here in chapters 10 through 13 come from his sorrowful visit. 
But now he's headed back for a third time. In a matter of weeks, maybe even days. This third time, Paul is expecting a different attitude from the Corinthians. But if this visit results in another relational meltdown, he says this could be the third strike. Another bout of ugliness here could ruin Paul's influence in Corinth. It could solidify the alienation between the truth of the gospel and the hearts of the Corinthians. The false teachers would have won. After the first two strikes, you get another chance. But after the third strike, it proves final. He also quotes Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. He says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Again, it's three strikes and you're out. In a Jewish court, one eyewitness was never enough for a conviction. The testimony of two gave a little bit more support. In other words, it corroborated the testimony. But three eyewitnesses, and it was case closed. Paul is giving the Corinthians an ultimatum in advance of his visit. Twice he has been a witness to their rebellion. Now he's coming a third time. And he hopes that their reaction won't seal a negative verdict. Paul doesn't want to judge their hard hearts. He comes with a warning. In essence, Paul is coming to Corinth as an umpire. And they need to know that three strikes and you're out. And then he writes in verse 2, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. This word spare, it means to spare in battle. Here Paul is declaring war on the false teachers. When he arrives in Corinth, he won't be afraid to do whatever it takes to put his opponents in their place. Paul is uttering a full-throated threat. He intends to shut up the people in Corinth who had been slandering his character and had been lying about his ministry. He writes, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And it was true, Jesus had done mighty, miraculous works in the church at Corinth. Remember, this church had been born in the midst of a spirit-led, a supernatural revival. But rather than seeing that God's strength is preceded by our weakness, the Corinthians were fixated only on the power. The whole point of this letter was to correct that perception. That Christ is mighty. He does want to do great things. But don't forget, His resurrection followed His crucifixion. And in Paul's life, a powerful ministry rose from his own personal weakness. It's always our weakness that gives God opportunity to be strong. In fact, set off a Roman candle. Watch the color. Watch the sizzle. Watch the fireworks explode. But when it's over, realize it came from an empty paper shell. And this is true of all Christian ministry. Oh, the fireworks come from God within us. But we are just the shell. Well, again, Paul holds up Jesus as the example. He says, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Paul had been criticized for being weak in his appearance, unpolished in his speech, unpretentious in his style. He wasn't as flamboyant as his critics The carnal Corinthians had mistook gaudy for godly. 
Paul straightens them out here by pointing at Jesus. According to worldly criteria, worldly standards, our Lord appeared weak. He impressed us with his simplicity. Jesus hung out with the humble, not the high and mighty. He identified with the poor, not the rich and the privileged. He shunned the trappings of of privilege and materialism. The Roman cross was the antithesis of what the world sees as successful and pleasing and pretty. And yet it was through his weakness that Jesus unleashed the power of God. And this is the paradox experienced by not just Paul, but everyone who's called on to serve the Lord. When we become weak, then he can be strong. Paul was certainly tired of defending himself to these Corinthians. These false teachers had questioned his integrity at every turn. And so finally, here in verse 5, he suggests that they should question themselves. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And here is a profound truth. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Attend church. Wear Christian t-shirts. Use Christian verbiage. Throw around some Christian terms. Memorize a few Bible verses. Even listen to Chris Tomlin. None of that makes you a Christian. Paul concedes that some of the Corinthians were pulling the wool over their eyes. They were fooling themselves. A mother once overheard her little schoolgirl praying, Now I lay me down to rest. I pray I pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. But the truth of life is that all of life is a test. And we don't receive the final grade until we die. At that point, it's pass or fail. Either you have embraced Jesus as Lord or you didn't. You might have resisted Him. You might have just never gotten around to taking Him seriously. But both receive failing grades. One of my earliest, <coughs> excuse me, one of my earliest childhood memories was of my mom at church. She sang in the choir. She even played the organ. From all appearances, she was a devout Christian. I'll never forget the night of the big revival. The guest evangelist was in the middle of his altar call. I don't remember the song he was playing, probably just as I am. I think we did that one all the time. But suddenly the music stopped. I looked over to the organ to find my mom. She wasn't there. She had stopped playing and she had responded to the invitation. I'll never forget it. She was standing there in the altar in her choir robe. It took guts for my mom to do that. She was heavily involved in the church. But that night she realized that all the good works in the world won't save you. Mom had never given her life to Jesus, but she did that night. As a kid, I was baptized three times thinking I was a Christian. Yet I had never surrendered my will to Jesus. I'm just saying, it can happen. We profess, but we don't possess. Perhaps you've been coming to Calvary for years. You've even served in various ways. 
but you have skipped a step. The first step, the most important step. Rather than surrender your life to Jesus, you're still in control. Oh, you come. You even participate as long as it benefits you. But you haven't given your life to Jesus. Sadly, I believe that hell is going to be filled with church folks who never examined themselves to see if they were actually in the faith or just packing a pew. Once there was a young man, he was enrolled in theological seminary, but when the officials sent for his undergraduate transcripts, there was an apparent mix-up. Officials at his former college, they knew the fellow, they remembered him. In fact, he was quite popular on campus, but there was no record of him ever being enrolled. No classes, no credits, no grades. Well, when they contacted him to try to clear up the confusion, he confessed. He had taken the money that his parents had sent him for four years of college, but he had never officially enrolled. He went to class, but he audited the courses. He attended college, yet he was never truly on the rolls. It turns out he was a pretender, merely a bystander. And I'm afraid that is exactly what is going on among many people today. One day, people are going to find that though they attended church, they weren't really enrolled in the class. They were never really a part. They audited the Christian life and got no credit. You know, it's been calculated that by the time a person finishes college, they've taken over 2,600 tests and quizzes. But there is one more exam I hope you take. Examine your heart. Please test your faith. See if Christ truly dwells in you. This is the most vital test of all. And by putting together several scriptures, Romans 8 verse 9, 1 John 3 verse 14, 1 John 2 verse 29, 1 John 5 verse 4, I have created for you this morning an SAT. Do you want to take the SAT one more time? I've created one for you this morning. I'll call it the salvation acquisition test. Here are four questions you should ask yourself. First, do you sense the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Is there an inner witness of the Holy Spirit inside your psyche, inside your life? Romans 8 assures us that God's Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Second, do you love other believers? Hey, if you're connected to the Father, you'll love His family. There'll be this outer witness, a camaraderie with the family of God. Third, do you practice righteousness? What God puts in eventually wiggles its way out. A cleansed heart ultimately produces not a perfect, but a purer life. And fourth, are you overcoming the world? In other words, have you experienced a newfound motivation, an inner strength that helps you to resist temptation and stand up for God? If you're in Christ, the answer to all four questions should be yes. Again, none of us have arrived. We all have a long way to go, but we should be making progress. You should be able to point to measurable change in your life. It's been said it's difficult to live a Christian life without knowing that you are one. This is why we all need to examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith. By doing so, 
we can gain some assurance of our salvation. And then Paul adds, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul is hoping that he's already shown them enough personal evidence of his conversion to Christ, of his sincerity, of the genuineness of his Christianity. Therefore, when he arrives, hopefully, he'll have their respect. And then verse 7, now I pray to God that you do, eat, that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved. In other words, Paul is not like the guy who wants to point out the flaws in others to make himself look good. See, this is the tactic of the self-righteous person. Hey, when you're trusting in your own goodness to please God, you tend to be overly critical of other Christians. It's by putting down others that you elevate yourself. But Paul says, this isn't my tactic. Though the Corinthians had attacked him, he harbored no secret wish for the Corinthians to fail. In other words, he hopes only the best for the Christians in Corinth. He writes, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Paul was sure of his salvation, no doubt about that. Despite his scars, his setbacks, his scourgings, his sickness, his shipwrecks, Paul was confident that God had not forsaken him. Paul knew that he was forgiven and loved in Christ. And though it seemed at times that God had abandoned Paul, the apostle knew that his status was secure. Some of his critics might have viewed him as disqualified, but Paul was certain that he had been accepted by God. And he longed for the Corinthians to have the same assurance in their hearts. And then Paul states, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. If somehow Paul taking a back seat could embolden the Corinthians' faith, he'd be happy to appear weak so that they could be strong. In other words, if he had a need that the Corinthians could meet, or if there was some reason for them to pray for him, or if he had a weakness or fear they could help him overcome, then so be it. He was happy to admit these things. Anything to encourage them in the truth. And notice again, verse 8, he says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. This has been an extremely strategic verse throughout church history. Because of this verse and others like it, when a believer faces a contradiction between the Bible and some church council, or the Pope, or some elder, or some other ecclesiastical structure, when there's a contradiction between the Bible and what the church says, it's the Bible we follow, Paul says. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Hey, if your choice is some tradition or the truth, there is no choice. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Paul's conscience was bound to the truth. This is how Martin Luther answered the Council of Worms when they had the power to take his life. He was being tried, remember, for teaching the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, that we're saved by faith alone. And when asked to recant, Luther courageously, he stood up and he replied, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, 
For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Paul, too, did nothing against the truth. And then verse 9. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Paul's desire for the Corinthians was for them to be complete in Christ. The word translated complete means thoroughly equipped, fully fitted. We leave for Israel next Sunday. It'll be my ninth trip to Israel. But I remember my first trip. It was tough to pack and prepare for a trip overseas. I mean, there's so many unknowns. I'd never been to Israel before, so I wasn't sure what to expect. The weather, the currency, the language, the food, the customs, the kind of plug you stick in your outlet, you stick in your plug. I mean, all these things are different in a foreign country. But it was the travel agent that came to to the rescue. For about a week before the trip, we all got a detailed travel packet. It provided all the information. It gave us the full scoop on what to expect. And this is how Paul is praying for the Corinthians, that they would be prepared for their Christian journey, that they would be equipped for the journey. You know, when you first become a Christian, you don't know what to expect. The Christian life is full of unknowns. Old friends and fears, what do I do with those? Trials and temptations, how do I handle that? New opportunities, what should I do? How can I be ready? We can pray that God will complete us in Christ. And like a good travel agent, God has come to the rescue. He sent us some travel documents, you know that. He's mailed out a packet of detailed information. We call it the Bible. You're holding it in your lap. And if we'll take that book seriously and we'll follow it carefully, it'll keep us out of a ton of trouble and it'll maximize the enjoyment of our trip. How do you pack and prepare for life's journey? It's the Bible. And then verse 10 tells us, Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. You know, a letter often enables you to say hard things, touchy things to the people you love. A letter, sometimes an email, it enables you to sort of let it all hang out. It gives the person writing the letter the opportunity to express themselves, to put out their opinion there. It gives the person receiving the letter the opportunity to digest that opinion, maybe even stomach your disapproval before they in turn have to formulate a response. And this is what this letter did for the Corinthians. Paul could be as sharp as he needed to be, but it also gave the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work in the hearts of the Corinthians before they had to answer Paul's accusations. So it was a good thing. And then in verse 11, Paul begins to make closing comments. He says, finally, brethren, farewell. Notice the tone here changes a bit. For the last four chapters, Paul's been questioning whether they were brethren or not. His skepticism reached a crescendo by daring them to examine themselves to see if they were in the faith. But apparently his cynicism has now subsided. and He's willing to concede that yes, (laughs) most of them were brothers. And he says to his brethren, become complete. 
Again, the problem wasn't that they weren't saved, but that they had never grown. They were lacking and they were anemic. And this could be your problem. Certainly, examine the vitality of your faith. But if it's been waning, don't immediately jump to the conclusion that you're not a Christian. You may be a Christian who just lacks instruction. For years I had the desire to live the Christian life, but I was never taught how. I didn't understand the Scriptures. That's why Paul reiterates, become complete. Pay attention to the travel documents God has sent you. Study your Bible. You'll have a more enjoyable journey. I mean, here's an example for you. When you travel overseas, you're tempted to use your cell phone the way you would in the States. Beware. Oh, I know this from firsthand experience. Different rules apply to different countries. You can rack up some enormous charges and never know it till you get home. And this is what happens when a person first comes to Christ. They tend to act the way they've always acted. Say it's your cell phone. Now that you're a Christian, there needs to be a little terms of use button down there at the bottom of the cell phone there where you should just click on a little button. Do you agree to God's terms of use? That's what it should say. I mean, you no longer call the same people that you called before. Not when you're a Christian. You don't log on to the same websites you used to log on to with your little smartphone. Not anymore. You don't use it to text gossip to other friends. Again, consult the travel documents and they'll teach you the Christian way to use that cell phone. The Bible completes us. It fills in our new life in Christ. And then Paul continues, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And understand the fact that we're told to be of good comfort and be of one mind and to live in peace implies that it's at least partly within our ability to live this way. Usually we think of comfort and unity and peace as being up to the person or people that we're with at the time. Notice, will they comfort me? Will they work with me and agree with me? I mean, will they be peaceful toward me? But really the answer to those questions to a large degree lies with us. Do we create a conducive atmosphere. Hey, I can endear myself to people with my kindness. Or an abrasive personality can rub people the wrong way and prevent them from ever wanting to comfort me. Hey, I'll be of one mind with you as long as you mind my mind. In other words, accept my opinion. That's not the attitude that unifies people. And don't expect people to live peacefully with you if you're the belligerent person always picking a fight. Whether we're of good comfort and of one mind and able to live in peace does to a degree depend on the airs we give off, how we approach people. And then verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Professor Michael Christian of Boston College has written two books on the subject of kissing. But since the release of his second book, The Art of Kissing, the good professor says that his love life has gone downhill. Christian explains what's happened to him. He says, now when I kiss a woman, she usually responds, 
You wrote the book on kissing and that's the best you can do? Oh, the problems with being an expert. In his books, Michael Christian says there are actually 25 different types of kisses. I'm not sure his list includes a holy kiss, but Paul tells the rest of us Christians that indeed, when we greet one another, do so with a holy, that is a godly kiss. This was an important distinction for the Corinthians. They were coming out of a lifestyle where lust ran rampant, where sex was worshipped. Paul says, kiss each other, but keep it holy. Once I had a fellow, he came up to me and he told me that he was first attracted to our church because of all the hugging that went on. He said he really liked the hugging. As a matter of fact, he, he was really happy whenever we'd have people welcome each other. He'd walk around the room and, ki- and hug all the good-looking women. That's what he told me. That's not a holy hug. Paul isn't just saying, greet each other with a kiss. He says with equal force, knock off the fleshly kissing as well. Make it holy. Actually, in Paul's day, a kiss was a cultural greeting. Sort of like a handshake is today. Perhaps if Paul were writing to us, he would say, greet each other with a holy handshake. The point is, is that we should extend a warm, sincere, touchable greeting with one another. See, this world we live in is a cold and cruel place out there. Some folks, literally, they live their lives and they are never touched by another human in a caring way. Never. We should demonstrate our love tangibly. Hug and kiss each other if need be. We should reach out and and be tangible and demonstrative in our welcomes and in our expressions. Dacker Kelter is a psychology professor at UC Berkeley who says that our social awareness is profoundly tactile. tactile. All human beings are tactile in our expressions. As a matter of fact, he's done some research on the celebratory touches of pro basketball players. Fist pumps, high fives, chest bumps, leaping shoulder bumps, chest punches, low fives, High tens, full hugs, half hugs, team hugs, etc., etc., etc. Kelter concluded that human touch lowers stress. It builds morale. It even produces victories. He has, in his research, has found that the teams that touch more win more. And I think this is true in the church. Expressions of acceptance bring us together. Meaningful touch affirms our importance to each other. These acts of celebration, they celebrate our common calling. How Christians greet each other is no trivial matter. So, be demonstrative in your greetings. Handshake or high five. Chest bump or fist pump. Or even a kiss. Just keep it holy. The acceptance and the mercy that we communicate in our welcomes should be considered sacred, especially when we judge it against what's going on in our world today. Paul finishes his letter, all the saints greet you. Paul was writing from Macedonia and the believers there also wanted to extend their greetings to the Corinthians. And then he closes with a final benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This verse emphasizes God's triune nature. We worship one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this last verse is actually a blessing. Imagine all three members of the Godhead joining together to improve your lot in life. Jesus showers you with His grace. The Father surrounds you with His love. And the Holy Spirit indwells you to reveal His presence in you. May we live every minute of every day in all three, in grace, in love, and in communion with the Holy Spirit.